This is The Guardian. Today, celebrating Christmas in a city at war. Kiev at this time of year is cold. At the moment, for some reason, it's very grey. It's sort of engulfed by a cloud of fog and you kind of wander around and you can't really see the other end of the street. It's also very dark because they've switched off all the street lights in order to save electricity. The mayor of Kyiv has warned of an apocalypse scenario this winter if Russia keeps up its airstrikes on energy infrastructure. Ukraine has enforced new emergency power cuts. Isabel Koshu covers Ukraine for The Guardian. She's based in Kyiv. Winter is always tough in Ukraine, but not like this year. The country is at war, and the Russian army has turned winter into a weapon. They've attacked power grids, water supplies, plunging Ukrainian cities into cold and darkness. It's making life for ordinary people miserable. And that's the point. On Saturday, I went to go meet Maria and her family. They live in a suburb of central Kyiv. Maria had invited me uh, to see how her life had changed since the invasion started. We met downstairs and she had her hair tied up in a turban and she said to me that she hadn't been able to wash it because there hadn't been any electricity yesterday. The day before we met, there had been a series of strikes by Russia and the power was still out in her building. Um. And, and uh, is, the, is the lift not working? No, nah, Iran is out of electricity because it doesn't work and it's the Soviet Union building. And then she said to me, uh, I'm afraid we're going to have to climb eight, eight flights of stairs. It was, uh, it was quite a challenge. And she said to me, you know, it's a, it's a challenge for us, but imagine all the elderly people who live in this building. almost feel myself like that. <laughs> Before we went into Maria's block of flats, I asked her who's living with her now, and she said, well, it used to be just me and my husband, Genya, but now it's me and my husband, Genya, and my mother and my grandfather. When we reached the top, uh, they were all there to meet me, including their two very sweet dogs. They bought all of these uh, clairs and other sweet things, as well as juice and tea. I see that you have a tree. In the middle of the room was a big Christmas tree, which was quite unusual because I haven't actually seen many Christmas decorations in Kiev this year. Because of the war and because I think a lot of people don't feel very Christmassy this year. For most Ukrainians, this is their first wartime Christmas. It might not be their last. Isabel spent some time with one family as they prepared to celebrate the season. Waiting for air raid sirens, thinking about the safest place in their apartment to sleep, and figuring out when so much has been taken away. 
what is it about Christmas that survives? From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, Ukraine's defiant Christmas at war. Isabel, it's been 10 months since the war against Ukraine was launched, and for civilians in Kyiv, it might be one of the most difficult periods of the war. Last Friday, Russians launched another mass rocket attack on Ukrainian civilian infrastructure, part of a new strategy by the Kremlin to try to eke out some advantage in this war. Tell me about this new strategy and what it means for Ukrainian civilians. Russia's new strategy has been to target civilian infrastructure in Ukraine, And what that means is that Ukrainians are suffering from regular power outages, most of them what you call scheduled power outages. So they are decided by the electricity company or the state energy company. And the aim is to make sure that Ukraine has enough electricity so that you at least have a few hours of electricity a day. But the more that Russia continues with these strikes, the more scary in a way it gets because we're really going into winter now in Ukraine. It was on Saturday, I think in the evening, minus six or seven, and it's probably going to go down to about minus 18 in January. So the mayor of Kiev and other officials have warned that if it continues and if the situation continues to worsen, then they will have to evacuate the city because there just simply won't be enough energy to supply all its residents. That is such an unbelievably cruel strategy, especially in the middle of winter, when something like the cold becomes literally a life or death matter. Isabel, what does this strategy actually mean for for people's lives, for people living in Kyiv and other cities? So families in Ukraine are dealing with it in different ways. There was a, like a special operation to warm up water authority because we have blood and battery. Maria's family, they have bought some large power batteries which can provide you with electricity for up to five hours. Everybody has like a mixture of drinking water and then they also have what they call technical water. So that's for washing or flushing the loo. I don't know. Maria's family have also done what most people have done, which is buy a camping stove. When it's really cold outside, the number one tactic is to eat or drink something warm before you leave the house. And then the next time you enter a building, you're supposed to eat or drink something warm as well. And people realise that they can't go without hot food when it's that cold. People have also stocked up on blankets, warm clothes. And at this point, most people are very ready for what could be to come. But of course, it's one thing surviving Two, three, four days without a proper electricity connection or water. It's another thing when it goes on for weeks. I started to get water from this accumulator and the huge one battery. And it's just like, oh, how we ended up here. Another thing that is a big concern for people living in Kiev is the possibility that you or your building could be hit during one of these mass airstrikes. I heard another burn, but this time the walls shook and I saw the flames. From my window, it looked like it was coming from above the fifth floor. 
I live on the fourth floor, but you can see that the flames were higher than these houses. When uh, Maria's granddad and mother first arrived, they thought, oh, I'm safe. But they arrived just at the time when Russia started these mass strikes on the energy infrastructure. And just recently, about three weeks ago, there were three different residential buildings hit in her particular district. One of the things that she said to me when we were climbing the stairs was, you know, everyone used to want a flat on the top floor and now everybody wants to live at the bottom, not just because when the electricity goes out, you have to take the stairs, but also because the higher up you are, the more unsafe it is. Yeah, we're trying to predict how uh, the rockets could shell our home or not. Uh, statistically, how many buildings are in Kiev and how much rockets are sent. Uh, so which percent are we going to have some? Even geographically, there's a more open side of our house. So we kind of more safe than our neighbors. So we're just like trying to predict which side better to lie down here and this narrow corridor here. So we In Ukraine, there's this safety rule called the four-wall rule. And what it is, is that if you stay in the corridor with all the doors shut, if there's an impact nearby you, the glass won't hit you, the furniture won't hit you. So it's considered the safest place to be. Maria said that also when the invasion first started, so for the first month in February, they slept in the corridor. Strategies like sleeping in the corridor might protect people to some extent inside their apartments, Isabel, but they still have to leave to buy food, check on friends and family and run errands. How do people in Kyiv do that safely when the sky could fill with drones or missiles at any moment? So they have a very good system, uh, like an air raid alert system. Just about everybody has an app on their phone and the sirens also sound out throughout whatever city or small town that you may be in. From that point, you usually have at least 15 minutes, if not 30 to 40 minutes, to find shelter. So... In that sense, you can go back your daily life, but of course the siren could go off whenever. So there are public shelters throughout Kiev, a mixture of sort of basements, car parks, metro stations, and that's kind of how people live. In the months we get used to it, and now just like there is a huge problem for Ukrainians, we ignore all these air systems and just like, ah. Oh my god, should I stop every time Russians trying to kill me? That's how I could uh, spend yeah, whole my so life. <laughs> so now, we just so deal I, with that. I have one rule. Uh, sirens here yeah, that uh, uh, don't walk at the street. Yeah, safe. it's just like yeah. you're yeah. trying to be safe in some building closer to the ground and that's it. <laughs> just like, that's enough. It's become very normalized, unfortunately, because it's happening every week, twice a week, sometimes three times a week. What is the point of doing this on the part of the Russian army? To 
target civilians and civilian infrastructure so blatantly? So the point is to demoralise people, to make people think we can't go on. It's also disruptive to frontline fighting, to getting supplies there, to how families of the soldiers are feeling. You know, that's going to bring down morale on the front line if Russia has success in destroying the energy infrastructure. But it's, you know, it's a way of saying that we're stronger than you, we're bigger than you, you can't win this. You might, you might as well surrender. If the point of the strategy is to demoralise people, to make life as miserable as possible, how are Maria and her family trying to celebrate Christmas, what's meant to be a joyful time of year, under such terrible circumstances? I'm just like a big fan of the Christmas, uh, of all holidays, actually. <laughs> and that's... Um, really makes sense to me. Uh, so Maria was very determined so to buy a Christmas tree, very determined to decorate it, very determined to have lights, even though I don't think she switches them on very often, very determined to decorate the rest of the apartment. There were small decorations in yeah. the corners. The tree in the house. Uh, I do love it. Uh, the first uh, nice thing uh, to decorate it because we have decorated, as I said, uh, the full family, including all these <laughs> buddies, including the dogs trying to help us or, or not to help. Um, uh, for for yeah. them, it's also about being together. They spent a large part of this year apart and they didn't know whether or not they would reunite. And I'm so happy we are all together. I'm just like, uh, I could stand and cry when my grandpa came to me and asked me, just switch me a football championship uh, and just walking out of me, seeing loud this <laughs> football. And I'm just like so happy to see him be here. You know, they're going to cook all the traditional meals. They're very determined to enjoy it. You know, a few weeks ago, Maria went to... Sweden with her mother and on the way back they stopped off in Warsaw to get the train back because since the invasion there's been no commercial flights in Ukraine. And have seen all these Christmas lights. They're just kind of like a therapy. And when they're in Warsaw she just she said she just felt so much joy at seeing these Christmas lights and the the atmosphere and she realized that what had become her normal in Ukraine was just far from normal. But when she, when they were in Warsaw and she was with her mother and they were having this, you know, really, really nice time and feeling this real sense of relief, being able to forget about the war for a second, um, she got this phone call and some of the people who are still living in her mother's hometown, which is an occupied Kherson region, said that... The Russians had made a base in their family hotel and in the next door children's camp, which they also ran. Which my grandpa had built in the Soviet times as the engineer. Um, it's destroyed. And the Ukrainian army should ruin that. This family business had just been completely levelled, basically. And so, you know, it was, it was kind of like a double-edged sword. On the one hand, they had this this moment where they forgot about everything and then the next moment they were brought back into the war. 
I mean, I can see why in this context, something as simple as putting up a Christmas tree has so much power for Maria, but does everybody in the family feel that way, that you need to try to snatch joy at the moment, wherever you can? So I think for Maria, celebrating Christmas was really important to her this year. She felt that it could help her and her family through this period if they, you know, try and celebrate it as they normally would. I think for her grandfather, however, he's still in so much pain after having uh, left the hometown where he'd spent his entire life, where he'd met his wife, where his wife had sadly died a couple of years ago, where he'd brought up his children... You know, it was his house. Um, he's now living in his granddaughter's flat. It's not, you know, quite the same. And I think for him, the the number one thing in his mind was you know, going home, getting back. The new year, the new year. And every day we remember and we want to go His view of the, the season is... Well, New Year's Eve is all well and good, but actually all I want is just to go home, and that's my number one wish. That goal of his, sadly, at the moment, does not look possible. Despite the heavy winter, the fighting is still ongoing and intense in Ukraine's east. Isabel, what is the state of Russia's invasion right now? So Russia is concentrating a number of forces in Eastern Ukraine in the Donbass, they're trying to reach what is called the administrative borders of Donetsk region. As of the 300th day of the war, hostilities have ended the semi-positional phase. Both sides are preparing for an offensive, gathering forces. Russian generals are now trying to find opportunities to resume offensive actions. The Russians attempted to organize a massive strike, for example, in the direction of Kyiv, reinforcing it with strikes from the territory of Belarus. They haven't been successful so far, despite throwing so many troops and equipment at this. But it looks like they're going to continue to do that. Across the rest of the front line, there's still ongoing fighting. Ukraine is still trying to win back more territory, but it has kind of reached a bit of a stalemate. What's likely to change in the next few months is the arrival of around 150 to 200,000 newly mobilised Russian troops. So when Russia announced its mobilisation in October, it immediately sent dozens and dozens of thousands of men straight into Ukraine with very little training. But it's set about training around 100, at least 150,000 of them in different areas of Russia. Zalpam! 333! So last week, Peter Beaumont and I, uh, another correspondent at The Guardian, had an interview with Alexei Reznikov, who's Ukraine's defence minister, and he told us that these mobilised troops are going to come and we expect them to come in February. We believe to our intel, we believe to all facts that was uh, fixed by United States intel and etc. But, do you but believe this is Russia not the last decision because it will be a really bloody massacre. He said that he expects it to be the same style of offensive as we saw last February. 
So that is, you know, troops coming in from all different directions. That's a terrifying possibility to think that in February we could see a repeat of what we saw in February this year, an all-out invasion, an attempt to possibly take Kiev itself. It sounds like, Isabel, any prospects of this war possibly finding its way to an end in some form in the year ahead and next Christmas being a little more peaceful for Maria and her family seems a very, very small possibility at this stage. So at this stage, it does seem like Russia is planning for a multi-year war. That is what most people, including Ukraine's chief of staff, General Valery Zaluzhny, believes. He's the head of the Ukrainian army. In a very rare interview last week, he said that he expects that they will try to take Kiev again because if you want to occupy a country, if you occupy the capital, you know, you're cutting off the central system of command, no matter how kind of devolved you might want your authorities to be. So much of the system is focused around the capital, particularly in Ukraine, because Kiev is geographically located in the centre. And given all of these incredibly ominous signs on the horizon, how do Maria and her family go on, not just through Christmas, but beyond it? So I think that they, like the vast, vast, vast majority of Ukrainians, really believe that they're going to win because they think that there is no choice other than winning. So it's just a question of time. Maria and her husband, they give, she said she didn't say how much exactly, but quite a sizable proportion of her salary each month to the army. And almost everybody I know in Ukraine does that. You know, it can range from something really small to several hundred dollars a month. I know people who give half of their salary. You know, they're very, very engaged, very, very confident in the victory. But it's for them, like everybody else, it's a question of time. So when I say to people, I'm a journalist, in different situations, people will say, oh, do you know when it's going to end? Do you know when the war's going to end? And obviously I, I don't have that kind of information, but people seem to think that maybe you have some sort of inside access uh, to these things. And it's just a very sort of painful question of time for people. And so for Maria, for instance, she's a psychologist by profession and she sees it her duty to maintain her mental health so she goes to meditation classes and then uh, the trainer said imagine the place where you have been the most happy in your life or the saviest place in your life that's always the beach of the oh my god interesting i've tried not to do that uh, um, i always imagine myself on those beach always every time um and for her, it's always, you know, the beach next to this family hotel, right next to Crimea, where, where she is from. I really, when I just, like, dream how would the victory looks like, first of all, I imagine how I cry in the those flats. Mom, we have won. That's it. We have done this. Uh, and then I imagine myself 
on this beach. I do understand it could be damaged and the mines could be on them, but that's how my victory is gonna be look like. Coming up, Ukrainian women and children could leave the country and be safe this Christmas. Why so many are staying? This is clearly such a tough Christmas for Maria and her family, but I think back to the beginning of the war and those predictions that their city, Kyiv, would fall on the first day or the first week. And nearly a year in, that hasn't happened. It's still a Ukrainian city. And and I wonder if just being there to celebrate Christmas, as difficult as it is, is itself an act of defiance, that it's still their city and they'll celebrate in it for as long as they can. Yes, it is. Staying is widely seen as an act of defiance because, of course, you know, Russia wants people to flee. Russia wants to empty the territory because the emptier territory is, the easier it is to occupy. We uh, pray with my mom every day in the special times. We do have like a collective Ukrainian praying for the changes of the soldiers that have been kept in Russia through all of them to those who've been uh, injured to be safe. Since around mid-March, Ukrainians have observed a minute of silence every morning at 9am. Maria says that, you know, her and her mother observe this minute of silence every day. Her mother prays for the quickest end to the war. But I'm not in, um, <laughs> in the same mood as my parents, the fastest way. I wish for the best way for Ukraine to win. And what she means by that is... The fewest people die between now and when the end comes. That is going to be my (laughs) main wish for the new year, obviously. That's every Ukrainian is going to stand in the Christmas Eve, in the New Year's Eve. We're going to wish for the victory. As I was leaving, you know, the grandfather said, please come and visit any time you want. You know, Maria will have you whenever you want to come, just come round in the way that elderly family members often do on your behalf. And I said to him, well, next year, you know, if uh, Novokovka is back under Ukrainian control, then we'll have to do the podcast again from Novokovka with you. And I could tell it made him really happy. Well, Isabel, maybe we'll be talking to you from there next year. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Isabel Koshu, a Guardian correspondent based in Ukraine. You can follow her coverage of the war at theguardian.com. Isabel has been one of many Guardian journalists who have spoken to us from Ukraine this year. Their efforts and the risks they take are the reason why we're able to cover this story so closely. So thank you again to Isabel Koshu, as well as to Dan Boffey, Luke Harding, Emma Graham Harrison, Dan Saber, Peter Beaumont, Sean Walker, Charlotte Higgins and Lorenzo Tondo. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Eva Krisiak. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. And we're back tomorrow. Mm
This is The Guardian.